All right, guys. On today's episode of the Trade Busters podcast, we've got a, a throwback. We're bringing back a, a episode type that we haven't had in a while. This is going to be real talk with real traders, where we're mostly going to showcase and kind of just get real and talk with a member of our own community. And today we have on Fox, um, just wants to be known as Fox, but that's fine. Uh, and uh, Fox, you've been, well, it's, it's been a while. We'll get into it, but I know we, we met either through Facebook before and you've been, you know, we've been chatting, you've been following my content, you're in the, you know, the Discord group. And uh, I really wanted to uh, get you on and just talk because I think you're one of those, uh, you know, I think you live a life that people who get into trading, like, Maybe that's what they aspire to, like that 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 lifestyle. I mean, tell me what I think you mentioned you're out of town. Where are you right now? Um, yes, I'm 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 perpetually out of town. I, I guess <laughs> right now I'm I am i am in South I'm in South Africa. Uh I'm like just looking out at a really epic sea. So it is I know what you mean by that the lifestyle the Lambo lifestyle. I don't I don't at all do anything like that. I just, you know, I really love the, to see the world. So for me, um my whole MO with trading has really been, of course, really, I'd say more than like financial, like giga wealth has been like the freedom, right? Yeah, so yeah. for me, the big appeal of trading has always been like, could I do this from really, from somewhere that I could really enjoy the time of being there? So I think that's actually that pursuit, I would say has been a big reason why I latched onto a lot of your stuff early on. Um, and even in the whole school, I'd say there's really like a couple schools of, of trading and for people who do it for a living, um, you know, you get your more discretionary people and maybe they're more price, price based or they have different theses, but, um, with you and the options, I call them the options nerds, you know, it's really like time-based strategies, which are a combination of type of time being a big factor um as, as far as selling options being on the short side mainly so that side of it really appealed to me as far as my pursuit of like freedom from tr with with trading and so that's really been been my goal and it's not to say that like you know i'm flying around the world on jets or anything like that it's i mean of course everyone flies around the world on jets but um it's really that for me traveling especially at this stage without a young family yet uh it's really the, the time to do it so um my, my partner and I'm, I'm very you know lucky she's very she wants to see the world as well so right now we're in south africa it's just coming onto winter so it's very cold in the water like freezing cold um but yeah that's really i guess you could call me like traveling fox yeah that, that would be my yeah let's do that I, traveling fox okay so um we're going to kind of peel back the layers and go to the beginning a bit. But, you know, before we set this up, you know, I, I told you intentionally we're going to set this as a, not really any agenda, so to speak. So I don't have any talking points. Um, but, you know, what's what's uh, I, I feel a little bad because we've had these great conversations in the past that honestly, they themselves, you should have recorded it because it would have made such a good episode. <laughs> so I, I feel like this is a way to kind of uh, capture some of that. Um, but, you know, I know you were on uh, Speaking Greek with Kirk. This was like, what, a month or maybe less than yeah, a month ago. ago? Yeah, maybe four to six weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so if, if for those that haven't, I would definitely go listen to that first. But um, before we kind of dive into, you know, to whatever, why don't you give us like a, a, a high level or maybe just like a quick yeah. overview of your trajectory of, you know, how you got into trading and yeah, let's just start sure. from the beginning and then, you know, and then sure. we'll kind of get into it. 
like super quick version is that um, I, I started like most retail traders a long time ago, like aspiring to the whole lifestyle of trading um, and really kind of was treading water for almost a decade. And uh, then about five years, just before COVID, one, two years ago, I before I started really getting into um, options and particularly uh, there's a lot of tasty trade content around the idea of selling options and using the, the extra, what we call it, advantage of the greeks in your what favor. were you doing before just stocks i was just forex? directional uh, fx because i was i'm based in asia typically um so for me the time zone over there it's best to do fx which is like the london session until the, the beginning of the new york so i call it the, the nylon the new york london section and that's pretty like the, the good trading window for asian-based traders um but about yeah five years ago i got really into us american options um, equity options and then that led to uh, a lot of tasty trade ideas and content and then basically opened the gateway into like UN Sinclair and Nattenberg which got me to the idea of like okay there's there's a real I mean I would say that tasty content really opened the door but then you know you, you yeah. Realize, yeah there's like so much more to do than just um you know, apply these top 20 strategies from the tasty bits or whatever, right? So um, that really got me started in options and really into the world of uh, long and swing term options. But then as I traded, I started out um, selling longer data stuff. I started a lot with, with a lot of your, your early work on Theta Engine. I think we first connected around um, not long after you did the Rising Stars because I was really motivated by that episode to see like, you know, what... Was that 2018 you did that? 2019? Late 2019. So you, 2019. this was the Facebook days, right? So I guess you were in the yeah. same Facebook group. Okay. Yeah, just, we just I think I reached out to you just before COVID or just around the time of the COVID crash because I'd been around six months into options by that point. Um, I joined a retail community called One Option, which is still around. It's a really great community. I learned a lot of stuff from there um, and really just started out by trading credit spreads directionally, uh, You mainly being a net, net seller of options. And realizing that I had a first, you know, like everyone, they, especially with credit spreads, you have a, a good run, uh, high win rate, really nice, like, wow, nine in a row winners. And then wham, you're like, whoa, okay, that's what negative convexity is. Okay. Well, were you not using any risk management or, I mean, I mean, even was, trade, they roll and stuff, but like, what was kind of yeah. your way to manage risk back then? Um, you know, it's a really crude style, which was that I just kind of, I kind of, uh, used hard stops <laughs> and this, is gonna, this might be like, i mean hey uh, i do too right so <laughs> yeah, I know. but i used to use them on on spreads at the okay. beginning so i used to treat like the credit that i could the max credit as as a unit of risk and then i would take that whole credit like 2x or two and a half x and this was really before that whole idea i think was really normalized by like you and tammy and a lot of the the stuff on zero d like um ha like a multiple of long premium being the stop of your short premium, right? And mm -hmm. I think that idea very early on was kind of like not really many people were teaching it that way. Um, Tasty was teaching you to roll. But for me, I was more of like, okay, I want to just have a series of equal occurrences where my win size is X and my loss size is X times however many. And um, that's really what I used to use for risk management. And I this was so early on that I didn't understand what exactly I was doing as far as I was looking to catch like a slice of the Greeks decay between a certain point. So 
Yeah, of course, at the beginning, you don't realize how maybe path dependent your strategy is. And in, in, in my case, it was quite. So over time, I learned more about what exactly I was doing when I was trading that style. And um, I would say it's been a five, I'd say five years, two halves of my trading trajectory. One was before options and one was after options. And five years in the options game, um, I think after about two, three years, I really started to find my niche and find my time frame. And I realized like even 90 DTE and 60 DTE, I, I know there's a lot of really nice juice there to be farmed out. Um, but for me, my trading style is just, I'm too impatient. Uh, and I like, I like feedback on a, on a faster time frame. So I just gravitated more towards like, the 10 and below, 10 DTE and below, or maybe 20 DTE and below is the area where I've been trading really for like about three and a half, four years now, focused there. Yeah. So that's so, where I've evolved to. So you alluded to this just now about kind of a personality match, but I'm wondering like, and, and you also said life before options and life after options. What do you yeah. think it was about what you did before options that didn't work and you were treading water or do you think was it experience you know knowing what you know now if you went back and did it could you make that work or is this something about options like i guess what made what you did before didn't work and mm -hmm. or why do options work for you okay you know? uh, i've actually been thinking about this a lot and i i hope that like if there's one thing i can really get across to especially some of the newer options traders is in my five, I'd say my five-year trajectory from like the valley of despair through, you know, we've all been through the valley and it's <laughs> dark and scary place. And when you first start to see that there's there's an endpoint. Um, okay, I think the thing I really wanted to share with, especially with newer options traders, is that I definitely got into options because my psychology was not ready to handle the the really in my soul the idea of risk. And I think that's something that everyone has to come to their own understanding of their own definition of. And there's a lot of work by, done by this guy um, called, I think, Ivan Banerjee. He's from this, uh, got a Twitter account called Trading Composure. And he talks a lot about how the market will make you understand your, real, your true feelings about uncertainty and how do you really feel about uncertainty. And I think for me, I graduated... I moved towards options away from, let's say, discretionary directional trading because I thought that options would give me an extra level of edge where I could remove some uncertainty and eventually arrive at a point where I'd be able to trade with a, you know, with a guaranteed outcome. And it took me a long time, like over 10 years, to realize that no matter what you trade, um, you're going to have to make a forecast. There's going to come a point in a time where uncertainty is going to be on the table and you have to, you have to take that into your, you know, into your decision. And then really, are you getting rewarded for such whatever uncertainty you're taking? And I think that like mental acceptance of the fact that really I was speculating on something with an uncertain outcome, that took a while for me to really come to terms with um, personal things may or may not have buffered that realization. But um, after an, after long enough, you realize it doesn't matter what you trade, how you trade it, there's going to come a point that we just don't know um, if you're going to get paid or, you, or you're going to pay out. And 
even though I'm in options now, I, I think the reason that got me to options was, was a kind of a site. I was looking for another crutch. I was looking for another thing I could lean on to increase, stack the odds in my favor. And so I did arrive at options. Now, coincidentally, there are so many things we can do in options since I've gone deep into them that are really unique to, to derivatives. And so I'm, I'm definitely like a total options junkie now. Like I'm, I, I mean, I do trade price. I do trade um, directional stuff, discretionary. Like today, um, I've made my my days. Uh, what do you call it? My days overheads trading futures uh, with the one with the move just before the open. Um, I also have some directional tools with some really cool guys. Um, we can talk about later. But so I do trade like futures directionally. But I'd say um, my my bread and butter is really in like the VRP game. And I don't even really call it the VRP side of things because it's so short. So short tenor like the options nerds will be like oh that's it's not vrp you know your gamma scalping or whatever whatever it is i'm doing um living in the 7 dte and below range that's generally where i i seek to make my like my regular uh, returns yeah you know what's so funny like that idea about and you were just kind of waffling about is it vrp is it not and like i was talking to jason buck on the podcast on my podcast the other day and like afterwards we were talking about like I offhandedly mentioned VRP because uh, I was explaining something about options. And like afterwards, he was like, man, I, I almost I had to stop myself from getting it into it with you on air because he doesn't believe in <laughs> VRP. Right. And we kind of had a short discussion. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I kind of get it. Like s- some people might be on the, uh, on the side, the, the school of thought of like, why is there a risk? He doesn't b- believe in equity risk premium either. Right. Mm-hmm. But then for me, it's like, well then why are we making i don't know like what is explaining what is our profit from right and we've gone down rabbit holes of thinking like oh our profits are distributed from like you know when we buy or sell an option the market maker hedges and then that causes them to buy or sell futures and then that means our profits distributed from whoever bought or sold from the market makers and then there's all kinds of ways you can try to rationalize it but at the end of the day it's almost like you want i kind of want to say who cares like we make our money but then at the same time, like I've always told people, if you want to know why, right? And like, is that something you think about? Or like, do you believe in risk premium and and there's so many of those old, you know, fundamental reasons of like, oh, there's nonprofit seeking participants, right? People who have to hedge, or there's people who are speculating or whatever. And there's like so many ways to rationalize why is there a premium? And it's all kind of behavioral based. So I mean, <laughs> is that something kind of like you think about yeah it? of course I, i've definitely thought about that a, a lot and had these like long conversations with myself and sometimes with other traders about this i think the the most important thing to to really take away from any discussions and i'm happy to go into them is that that you and jason um and you know myself we all have maybe different opinions on the theory behind what option what makes your options work or not work um but there's a level of understanding that's required and then there's a level of understanding for operation for operating and i think um being able to define the theory whether it's vrp or not i think is it's a nice mental exercise but we don't need to really uh, be able to defend our position like prove it right one way or the other yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's it and and also with with options like i've done i do a lot of things which like I, i won't dare to say on air because for sure, someone who's written a textbook would tell me that I'm, you know, I'm don't, uh, you know, I'll, I'll basically get trolled on for, for saying it well, on Twitter. W- will you uh, dare to say one of them on air? It's well, okay. no, so I mean, like I do, I, I trade, I trade what I think to be complementary structures 
um, you know, some being to look to capture like shortfall and some seeking to capture vol expansion, but do them in, in, in timing where they could both profit or they could also both lose, right? And people would probably tell me there's a whole theory about why my execution is, is flawed or is faulty, and why they might not balance each other. But I found that in, in this market regime, they work well. And so, you know, I construct the trades I take regularly are all really constructed to, they're layered on top of each other to give like a, like a Venn diagram overlap of profit payout on a timely basis. And, and for me, the, the best I can make that is like a one to two week cycle whereby like overall as a, as a uh, aggregate, the different, um, the different desks, I'd say, the different strategies of um, systematic trading produce like a, like a time-based weekly green return or worst case, two weeks. So I can't really explain, I can kind of high level explain why they would work against each other. But if you want me to show the math behind it, I, I can't do it. Like, you know, Nattenberg would pull apart my, my book in a second, probably, but I, I couldn't be able to defend it, but it, I trade it. And one reason I really have to, I have to shout out is um, the guys at Option Omega. So first Option Net Explorer was, was pretty groundbreaking to see how step-by-step -step your trade structure is going to play out. And then Option Omega took it, in my opinion, like really one level further and gave us... Um, even if we don't trade the SPX, just to see how these trade ideas or these structures or these theoretical concepts played out with real data, I think is probably the most invaluable learning tool I've been using in the past two, two year, one to two years has been as much as I've learned from the textbooks, I've learned just as much spending the whole weekend, like doing some options omega, just like hardcore testing and seeing how they play out. Now they have the trade replay thing. You can see the value of the trade as tick by tick against the SPX. So like seeing all that stuff, I think is extremely valuable learning. Um, and that's really helped me to guide my decisions and not so much. I didn't craft them based on textbook theory, but really based on what I traded personally. And what then I then back tested. I've traded personally. So, hey, you know, this is interesting. Back tested. There's meat on the, there's enough meat on the bone to really scale this up and scale it up. And um, yeah. I was actually, I mean, you, you basically got to the topic I was going to bring up anyway, which was back testing. And it obviously sounds like you, you know, you find that very valuable. Um, is Option Omega. Are you still using Option Explorer or is Option Mega the main one now? No, Option, yeah, that's completely overtaken. And I do have a, I've got a good friend who's a fantastic data scientist called, his name is Vexley and he runs a whole, well, it's not an open service anymore. Um, it's closed now, but he does, we do, he does help me with a lot of other backtesting ideas. And um, yeah, I think there was something which it might've been in your episode with Jason or it might've been, uh, he was in a recent episode with um, Captain Vol Corey. <laughs> was like the guy okay. Corey, yeah. Um, uh, where he said, as you're as you're trading and you're increasing your your you know, your net leak is growing, and I'm in that phase where I don't have a fixed working capital yet. I have got a target I want to get to, where I have like a fixed working capital, and then I you know withdraw profits after that. Um, but in the growth phase. Like your biggest loss is always ahead of you. Your biggest right. drawdown is still ahead of you. And then same, similarly, of course, your biggest profit, your biggest win, your biggest one day win, your biggest, you know, personal best is still ahead of you, but so is your biggest drawdown. And so um, like yesterday, I took like a pretty sizable whack yesterday. Um, and 
being on holiday, it does soften the blow a bit. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that that was something that really stuck with me about um, uh, from your from your recent podcast with Jason about how our our biggest risk riskiest moment is is still yet to come. So um, when we talk about back testing, like I think that fact remains whether or not some people will say okay back testing is you know curfitting data and i agree it really it is we're looking at the most ideal occurrences but if we can understand that that was the most ideal path of outcomes like what if we worsen that by significant you know a significant significant amount and it still has expected value then that's something i'm interested in and to me that's where the value of back testing comes in it's not about like okay back test says we get four then we're going to get four no back test says we get four instead of we get one let's investigate is four worth trading live so that's how i view back testing yeah no that makes sense because i've always said like you know you back test to get to find what well, you wouldn't want to trade a back test that shows it's clearly negative right mm -hmm. so yeah. It, yeah. it gives you, you a starting point and mm -hmm. um about the curve fitting you know everything is like like I said, everything is fit to something, but as long as you don't overfit it, then, and you understand path dependency and you know that you're always kind of like above or below that expectancy and um, you want to be robust. Do you do like kind of ensemble approach where, you, I mean, you basically say you're, you're mixing various mm -hmm. strategies that hopefully yeah. kind of zig and zag and offset yeah. each other. Uh, yeah. Is there, are you trading like, five or more or is it like handful does it depend like how many uh, i have like i would say i have three that are for the exhale of short vol two are for what i call the inhale of long vol and nice. one which is supposed to be uh, all, th all throughout the marathon jogger but of course there are if depending on what moment of the day or or moment of vol or vega you're at things look all kinds of crazy and that's the other thing is when you're really trade vol or, or, or SPX, vol as expressed in SPX, you have to really get a stomach for crazy numbers on the screen, mainly about from liquidity or, you know, spikes and, and things happen. Um, but if the, if the other thing is, I, I don't go too, too many. So if I say like three, three for exhale, two for inhale, one. So that's really only three structures that I'm quite familiar with. Um, you know, a version of the calendar, a version of the condor, depending how tight you make it, the iron fly. So basically like versions of that for different tenors against each other. And um, that's pretty much all it is really. Do you only trade strategies that you've tested? Yes, live, both live and back. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, but what I don't require a good um, historical duration of back test to really trade it live because I feel like, some the window for trading something live might be not that long so if i find something that has a compelling back test i might i would probably start trading it live right away not well, in massive size. what what duration do you need like at least a month or like there's probably like some quarter, kind of okay quarter or and it would also depend on what i believe to be a regime a market regime like right now i still think we're in a different market from pre uh thanksgiving 2021 um i think that we're still in something of a i wouldn't say a bear market but it's like a low confidence market and in a low confidence market i'm doing both sides of the ball whereas prior i was really not looking i mean you 
you know, the, the longitudinal studies of selling the call side of the condor prior to 2022, it just didn't, didn't add up in 2021. It would just like sell, sell more puts. And that's uh, what, you know, I think it's been a regime. It's been a regime change. The way I, where I view it is it's been a regime change. So when we back test and people, again, when people want to say like, Oh, you can't back test only on two years of data, I would say, well, actually the data from two years ago is actually not relevant uh, for two reasons. First of all, different, different vol regime. And second of all, just purely SPX liquidity since the May 16th, 2022, has just, you know, it's been steadily big, big volume increases every week. Um, more expirations, now they're adding more expirations to the, like the, the micros, right? The micro futures as well have five days. So that liquidity spur has made, in my opinion, a lot of theory from, which was written in textbooks before this liquidity boost, um, not as relevant, not as robust, I would say. You know, the other side of that coin though is if you're okay uh, trading something based on a shorter time frame of validation, how do you determine when something's out of phase? Because like for me, I, I feel like uh, I don't have the conviction to like try to seek out these new opportunities. Like, you know, you, you talk about longitudinal studies and I'm, I'm always trying to go really long. And I feel like I'm like, I my trading is kind of capturing these like old edges that are like just like always present and so i feel comfortable that it's like i can do something robust and if i'm capturing a thin piece of that but it's always present i'm okay right mm -hmm. but then you're almost like when you're trying to find regimes or detect them or predict them i mean how do you know when a regime changes or when a strategy just isn't good anymore have you ran into that or have you had to deal with that of course yeah of course of course you run into it and i mean i think we the psychology of trading is that that happens every time we take a loss, like for, especially as a vol trader, whenever I have a big red day, I'm thinking to myself, like, has the, are we, did we, did the winds shift? And I didn't, you know, it's today the first day of the new winds. And um, I will say, for example, like I don't lean heavily on zero DTE anymore. Um, short vol be, for the past four to five weeks, um, because I, 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 I watch the open every day. I watch how the SPX the price at the open, and I notice how how compressed the pricing was. And so it just doesn't make sense for me to to try and sell mechanically into something that doesn't have the opportunities present. So, you know, that's why I have been leaning heavier on on other parts of my ensemble. So my my ensemble had a zero D zero D component and also like a three and a set three five seven ten sometimes day components. So basically that budget from the zero D comes out and goes towards the other desks, so to say. Um, and that's I guess you could say that's due to my own sorry, there's a fly buzzing around here. Due to my own personal um uh observation of the regime changing just from the opening SPX pricing of the zero day chain. Yeah. But I can't define like in an investor's like prospectus, what is my regime cutoff point for A or B? Yeah. So you kind of look at various pieces of evidence and make a decision. Uh, you don't necessarily have like, okay, if I lose a certain amount, cut it. Or if certain criteria or thresholds are met i mean i guess in a sense it is a certain criteria like you have a few mm -hmm. of like like i said the vol compression so mm -hmm. it's more like that part of it might be kind of discretionary i guess in terms of like yeah. just a judgment that, call yeah and i think that's something that i again back to like the first point i was trying to make which is that there's no point in your career as a trader where you can ever escape 
you have to make some judgment call about some about something you know whether it's even you're a fully quantitative trader and you're going to apply some quant model that is, has hard numbers you're still making the decision to apply that system like how much risk you're going to allocate and also like for me as a my weakness as a trader early on was really accepting that uncertainty and owning it up and even with as systematic as we are we have to make discretionary de- points like calling calls about fall is increasing or you know decreasing and yeah so you know, that we can't what's interesting is because like that's all true but we essentially our approach is to minimize that we, we want to kick the can of the decision making as, as far down the road as possible now because yeah. we we automate we can kind of afford to like run more and more strategies, right? Whereas you have to kind of use your judgment to pick and choose where to allocate your capital, your attention. <laughs> what we've done is an approach of just keep innovating more strategies. So our ensemble basically has grown and we're mm-hmm. relying on the ensemble effect of smoothing out. So we're almost yeah. like trying to dodge that responsibility. Like, okay, just, just throw more strategies and hopefully they'll all blend yeah. out. So it's kind of interesting because like for me, like I actually feel like I'd be, I'd be very, I'd be very hard pressed to have to make those decisions, you know, mm-hmm. and that side of my, I guess, psychology drives a lot of my approach, right? And then, like, mm-hmm. you know, because I've done strategies like you know Theta Engine, whatever, and now to earn Strangle for like years, right? And people will come up with ideas like, hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Oh, at this call, do this delta. And not to say anything's invalid, but like a lot of time, my answer is always like, okay, test it. If it looks good, do it. You know, mm-hmm. but for me, I'd rather focus my intention on adding more, maybe less optimized, but more robust strategies as opposed to trying to optimize any one strategy. Um, yeah, so totally agree. It's like that a mindset I, difference, I guess. Yeah, I, I would love to have more budget to just... Um, Exactly. Add more things, which I which I would in theory add to my increase my robustness. And I've got I have a good trader friend of mine who's who's also in the OO group. He's got he's got a big stack, and he has the budget to test. You know, he'll he'll be like, oh, I'll add in like a six figure budget just for this one new trading structure, which he'll run for nine months, like however big the drawdowns are, and see like, oh yeah, it 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 played out as per as per the models. Um, you know, whether no matter how big the drawdowns are. And, I would, that's definitely a factor is um, how much working capital you have. And I think for me, I had to manage my own bankroll to a point where um, I realized how much it takes to really live test something like, how, you know, how long you have to trade something is quite a while um, and you have to trade it live because there, there is no paper trading uh, options right so th- i mean there, there is but let's not get, get into why it doesn't why it's not applicable so the the real investment cost of trading live testing a single structure in alignment with your psychology as its operator through various shifts in market regime you know whether even if the market regime has changed or not like from one extreme within the regime to the other that has a budget you know maybe it's ten thousand twenty thousand sixty thousand whatever it is and so Whatever is your starting amount, you have to recognize. I mean, for me, I, I recognized early, quite early on um, as I was spending my my learning, my R and D budget. I was like, okay, hang on a second. I've really only been trading two or three of these types of structures. I'm really comfortable with them now. I've seen, you know, I feel like I paid my dues as far as um, costs for L- for R and D. And so at that certain point, 
I had to decide I can't keep throwing money at new structures to increase my um, ensemble. I have to really get good at the um, the structures I already know. And from, let's say, the four or five that I'm very familiar with, pick the two or three that are going to work together in this market regime. So for now, at this point in time, it's uh, I took out the zero D stuff short, uh, which is was the main engine for a long time and i'm leaning more on the longer duration stuff and to count for overnight risk gamma squeezes and gamma drops like i have something that i put on when i have more of an overnight book so um yeah there's nothing really new but really just selecting from my team i've only got like a team of five p players to choose from whereas you've got like 20 no maybe you've got 10 and then if you need to you can draft in more specialists um, so that I think comes with time and more experience. I'll, you know, I'll have more exposure to other stuff as well. Yeah. And, and this is part of the reason why I wanted to have someone like you on, because I feel like, and this is intentional, but as much as I say that my podcast and my MO is like geared towards educating retail and everything, like I, I kind of lose touch sometimes because as a manager and as our AUM group, I, I didn't realize how much of a luxury having a, like, <laughs> basically an infinite bankroll was, right? Yeah. And so uh, Darren Johnson on Twitter has m used the term, our approach is the dragnet approach. We can just freaking throw everything out there and like see what we catch, right? And like we can just harvest, you know, those little bits. And, and part of that's because like our mandate is to, we're not trying to, you know, trade to feed ourselves in terms of like return on our capital, we're not trying to make, you know, hundred percent or whatever, which, you know, can be done. Right. Um, and so we, we don't need to get those like huge gains and like people like you, you have to be very smart about the budget, like you said, and like what you want to get the return on that. Um, and, and so it's, it's always good to get, get that perspective, right? Because I just, I don't, I, out of necessity aren't, in that camp where I have to be so cognizant of yeah. the you, opportunity you, set. Yeah. I think you, you both represent both you and Dan Johnson, probably for me personally, the two most influential um, retail pro slash, you know, one foot in both camps, because um, he also definitely has this, a lot of his uh, story is based around like, I wouldn't say like um, I would say he had to be really selective with with what he had to do, and that really resonated with me as well. Which is like I had I have enough. I've been fortunate, you know, to be able to get started, but I don't have enough to get started without really thoughtful planning. And I would also share like other advice I'd say for for newer traders is like don't just think you have an infinite budget for learning. You can chalk, you can write this off to R and D. Like definitely when you even have a path, like it takes budget time and bankroll to investigate that path. Even after someone tells you like, it's, it's a, this is expected value path, do this. You'd still take budget to do this. Um, so don't blow it all on, you know, trying different ideas uh, if you don't really have it. So that's, I think probably a difficult part of the retail trader's journey, which maybe not it's a pretty not sexy truth, but there comes a point where you have to stop doing what I, I call them sugar trades, which is like, um, for me, a lot of them are macro ideas. And you hear people talking about like, oh, wheat and blah, blah, macro, blah, blah, like blah, 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 blah. For me, the whole of macro is blah, blah, blah. Because as a trader who just trades like seven day or shorter, honestly, what do I really care about? Right. Like, really, I don't care about Aramco or whatever Saudis. I don't care. Like, it doesn't affect me. Um, 
And in fact, I aggressively avoid news because I feel that it's intentionally put out there to distract people from clear decision making, um, especially in the financial arena. And I really, I feel, I genuinely feel sorry for a lot of retail traders I talk to who are just living from one doomer podcast to the next doomer podcast about the end of oil is the end of gold or buy yourself. I don't know. I don't know what is the doomer podcast flavor of the week. Um, but like for me, that, that's all distraction. And so cutting out sugar trades or cutting out um, ideas. Oh, I, yeah, we're going to, the global financial system is going to collapse and you're short banks. Like that's not really, are you, is that your bread and butter trade? Because if it's not, don't waste $400. Yeah, it's only $400 or it's only $80 if you're, you know, but you need that to really invest in your, in your bread and butter stuff. So I think that's also a point for all retail traders studying out. Like don't, don't make that point too expensive in time. Like get there sooner if I could. You know, to that point, uh, you know, when I talked to, and I've talked about Matt Hollerbach and his work and about the importance of recognizing geometric expectancy. And so when you focus on the fact that uh, volatility tax and the importance of low drawdowns so that you can compound for, you know, future returns and growth. But if mm -hmm. you flip it the other way, every little mistake you make is essentially compounding backwards forever it, yeah. like you can't take that back and and so when people say stuff like uh you know you don't want to be too hard on yourselves but like sometimes people will write off a mistake oh i i fat fingered or i i i made a bad decision or i did a you know gut instinct trade and i lost whatever five hundred thousand dollars no big deal but you do that enough times and the cumulative effect so if you think about not having made 10 little mistakes and having yeah. an extra $10,000 that is now compounding for like, what is that impact on your long-term trajectory, you know? And so like, I'm so cognizant of like, not trying to make, you know, I, we, we get so annoyed losing like even a dollar. Like when we like sometimes, uh, you know, something goes wrong or something slightly off and like, yes, it's not a big deal, but like, all I think about is like, oh, like, if we lost an extra BIP, that's an extra, that's a BIP that's not in our track record, not in our performance, you know? Um, yeah. And, so I think it's important think you, to be aware of that. Your investors are lucky that you feel that way because uh, I think that's really, you, you, you do have, you have, I mean, like you aggressively have to defend your chip stack. Like this is like, they're coming into your home, you know, like pry this out of my, like it really has to be like that. And I feel that way. And I feel you're right. Every, like, trust me, a, a five, when you have no other bankroll coming in, right? When your only bankroll is what you make, you're only what you eat is what you kill. When you take a 5% hit, it feels like, whoa. Like, of course, in the grand scheme of things, like excluding sequence risk, uh, something like a two or 3% or, you know, 5% is a big, big hit when you have no other bankroll coming in. So when I see people talking about like doubling their accounts overnight, I, I know this is not a different frame. Like we're not talking about the same thing. When you're talking about, this is your job, this is your profession. We're not looking for double-digit growth every week. That's it's great. That's crazy. You know, we're looking for somewhat smooth single-digit with high with high expected um, outcome. So, uh, it, it because you're right. When you when you when you get that each mistake or each each experiment, I want to try this structure. I want to try to see how this works in a collapsing vol environment. Okay, well now you found out it costs you eight hundred dollars, and that you have to bring that back from something you already know that works. 
So, and even the stuff you, you say that, okay, I'll just trade more of my bread and butter, but the bread and butter still goes through profit and loss cycles as well. So can't just, you know, you have to be very selective with your budget. You know, bankroll management is very, very important. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about was obviously you've, you've gone over high level, your evolution and trajectory as a trader, not just psychologically, but like strategies, you know, mm -hmm. having started with, or I guess having kind of found Tati trade back in the round COVID or just before that, and then finding me and my content. And, you know, I, I know you were very keen on some of the stuff I traded and you tried it and you kind of moved on, but, um, it, but you mentioned there were some nuggets or kind of key concepts what for you was like a concept you took from that that shaped your okay. mindset and approach and it has stuck Great. with you? Yeah, there's I think there's two concepts which maybe people who listen to your work kind of overlook a little bit. One is the idea of credit targeting as a as a measurement of risk, because that credit, I mean, credit targeting um when you're in a certain part of the chain and you're familiar with it, you're intimate with a certain, let's say, for me, it's the 12 to 20 strikes on the zero day. That's usually where I live. I don't really go below 12, like where you and Tammy are fishing. I'm a bit higher than that. But you get you get a very intimate feel for what's the pricing supposed to be at 9.40, 9.45, 10 a.m. How quickly does it decay by 11? You, you get a sense of that. And for me, uh, credit targeting is the only way you can capture what the market maker is taking into his um, like pricing strategy for that day. And so whatever is the truth about how the, the options are going to be priced that day is going to come out in how the, the, the options um, surface is priced. And therefore, fixed you know, credit targeting is actually a very dynamic way of, of aligning your idea with what the market is offering. Um, so I... That's probably one thing. And the other idea of like of uh, stops, which again, theoretically or not, why they may or may not work, but in in practice they do work, um, even with slippage. And I would say the one big thing about stops is if you if you can account for slippage, a good slippage, like ten percent slippage, um, then and still have an expected value, then I think that makes the stops even more of a robust tool. So. Those two things, I think, which you added to your um, in your content and also in what you execute, I think I use a lot going forward as far as like understanding that credit targeting is uh, is a representation of what the market makers view on on the market that day, and also using stops. Yeah. I think uh, I wish I had learned or talked to Matt more last summer during kind of the quote unquote stop loss wars on Twitter. But I've realized now that I think a lot of the focus on why stops don't work is because people are focused on the arithmetic expectancy of a single trade, but not a sequence or a book of mm -hmm. trades when you're talking about the geometric yep. return. Because again, the stops purpose is to curb the volatility tax. That's it, right? Yeah. And you can bring That's that it. geometric expectancy closer to the arithmetic when you close that gap, the ARGR gap, as I call it. And that's the sole purpose. Right? It doesn't have yeah. to do anything with win rate or how much you make. It's just like, don't lose more than this. And if you're doing scaling on your trades, you know, stop the losses, your profits will come. Like that's and and like on the one hand, I want to simplify it, but on the other hand, I feel like sometimes the message is lost when you oversimplify it. It, it, it. Almost they get this like it's almost like scam you, like, oh, one, two, three, easy steps to make money, right? But it is that simple to a degree. So it's yeah. it's, it's hard to find that balance of how to share that message, I guess. 
Yeah, I think that's that's a good example of where the theory went a little bit like that discussion got a little bit heated. And and it's funny because there are people who openly disagree with each other on Twitter who I've taken great stuff from all of them. And they obviously just, you know, there's a bit of ego thing going on. But, um, you know, something like the stop, whether it works or not, I mean, in theory, like we know that it works in practice. And um, the, I just want to say like probably it doesn't, maybe it doesn't make sense theoretically on a one-off trade basis. You're right. Exactly. But, for, for um and like Sinclair goes into this pretty pretty convincingly in his in his books, but um I'd say as a as a retail trader, the, the most important metric for me is is smoothness of PL. Like it's not even net PL; it's like the smoothness or the you know mar ratio, real, right? Kager mar, mar, mar ratio. Mar ratio was and when was you and Jason were talking about mar? I was like, I'm so big oh, on that, that now. That's what it means. I didn't even know on on um, on on Omega the whole time. I've been looking like I thought it meant like monthly adjusted return or something. I was like, oh, that what it means. And then there's a little tooltip. I actually read the tool. I was like, oh, 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 that's why. And then I looked at all the stuff I've gravitated towards. It's like, oh yeah, the the Mar is like ten times higher than the other thing, which has a higher net PNL. Right. The Mar is way. And for me, that's psychology. Like to me, Mar is the thing that's going to allow you as a trader to actually do the thing. Like if you, someone gives you, here's steps one through 10, how to make money in the market, but steps one through seven are incur like pants shitting, heart out your mouth drawdown. You're not going to get to step eight, nine, 10, which is the payoff. But if someone tells you step one to four and step one is drawdown, step two, three, four is not drawdown. You're, you know, I'll take number of, I'll take that one. I'll take the steps one through four, which only has a bit of the, you know, gut punch. And that mar is such a that's to me that's the only concept that matters like so that measure if you had to sim- simplify like variance of pnl curve into a single number you you could say mar yeah uh, another thing i wanted to run by you and get your take you know when you're talking about the thing about credit targeting and how that influenced you and you mentioned about the price is a you know a certain reason it's it's like the market makers price a certain way now uh this is something I, I thought about and I'm I'm gonna make like a whole episode on this specifically, but people who are listening to this will get a taste of it. This idea of uh people who trade, you know, Delta One and kind of based on charts yeah. and like finding setups. Um and you know, I, I believe there's some credence to that and like high probability trades, so so on and so forth. Like and you, you spend all your time scanning or waiting for setups, but the option chain is essentially you've outsourced the entire knowledge of all participants. That info, like that 15 delta is literally telling you this trade has this probability and that is available to you anytime, right? So the, the, yeah. the it's price options are priced that way for a reason. It's because of market makers modeling, it's because of supply and demand. And so mm-hmm. having the option chain is essentially off outsourcing offloading the work of finding those yeah. opportunities to the whole market and like yeah it, it almost like it's like almost like an easy button you know uh, i don't know if you thought about it that way but like it was kind of astounding to me like you can just there's so much info embedded yes. in the price yeah. you're right you're right combined with the greeks it's almost mm-hmm. like all that math the heavy lifting has been done for you um, so I don't know, like, if, if you thought about it in that lens, but it just seemed kind of interesting to me, and was wondering, uh, put that way, yeah. like, what do you think of that? I mean, when you look at the SPX chain every day for over two years, of course you you observe these things, right? And you observe, um, 
that there is a lot of information in in how the surface is priced and how changes in certain strikes like and changes in volume with certain strikes they, they can indicate in certain things as well um i work a lot with this guy called vexley and he, he's really interested in this kind of stuff as well which is like how do the, like maybe the rate of change of volume in certain strikes throughout the day it might be just that at the ranges of expected moves, how that might translate into other ideas for you know, the day time frame or one day time frame like trade ideas. And that's all within the chain. You know, there's no, no, no scanning. And I, I also trade, I do trade stocks um, discretionarily. I do mainly trade the mega caps because they have the most liquid chains. So I do trade what I might perceive to be like the outlier leaders or laggards as a proxy to the market. If the market is a bit range bound, um, so I do trade that way as well, but I, I I don't so much do the you know the scanning for opportunities so much anymore because I find that in the option surface at some point in the day there's going to be something um, an underpriced option which looks like it could have a chance to move or an overpriced option which I want to sell, and um, I do find myself mainly just looking living ninety percent of my life in the SPX in the SPX chain. Yeah. Yeah. No. That that's great. Uh, how are you on time? Just uh, we're coming up. We're yeah. Oh up. no, man, it goes, it goes really quickly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's I, I don't want the thing is like uh, someone said on Twitter recently like who who would have the time to ever watch something longer than forty five minutes? I was like, oh, ever since then I was like, that's right because once something drags on beyond forty five minutes, I feel I me personally I always lose my my interest. Right. But um, no, I'm good on time. I I really there's a the, the thing I wanted to also maybe talk a little bit about was that well although I started on the short side of a vol um trading on the long side is like i think it's something that all vol sellers need to do to We're, understand we, we do long ball stuff too so no i understand i know i know you do yeah. i know and, we, and, and i too this has been really good that you and i have had um i've had a handful of conversations with you where you you know been grateful enough you've shown me the inside of your um you know your platforms and everything executing and that was, was really cool to have a inner look but um I'd say being on the long vol side has been a really good learning process to understand better the short side, because maybe one thing I'd say about the mainstream education about like short vol is that it, it presents the idea of short vol as free money. It, it presents the idea of like theta decay as something that happens without the holding of like the other Greeks constant. And that's the key with like theta is going to decay and translate into profits for you if the other Greeks remain constant. And that's the second part, the big if statement. It's not really shared in the mainstream of, of like selling options education um, that I think gets a lot of people. So getting on the long side of trading options is a good way to understand like how quickly when you buy a vertical how depending on its moneyness how quickly does it decay at certain points in the day or certain points of its life cycle and so when you understand that from the long side i found it made me a much better trader on the short side as well and not just assuming everything is going to be decaying to zero because there are definitely moments when being long um, certain strikes make sense and if it makes sense to be long you don't want to be short right. so for, so for, yeah if, i'd say like being especially though i'm, I'm still 90 percent short ball any given day, um, but trading the long ball side at, at different moments has given me a better understanding of, of when I might want to be or not be in the market short. Yeah. Great. Uh, from a more practical standpoint, I wanted to get a sense, you know, for people who are trading for a living or maybe aspiring to, 
and you mentioned the importance of maintaining a bankroll and everything. And how do you view kind of paying yourself? Uh, how do you structure that? And how, you know, is there like a schedule? And uh, yeah, yeah, and this is totally not because obviously as a founder manager, we're compensated very differently. So yeah. I don't even sure I know what questions to ask, but I think you get what I'm trying to get at. Like, you know, yeah, how I think do you look at that? It's a between like growing the account and and paying yourself or paying for for living expenses and things like that so um i basically just have like a like a roughly half half ratio where like half i'll reinvest um and half i will withdraw and that's the withdrawal amount that's based on a certain percent or a certain um time milestone for me it's basically like every two months um or if that point in pnl comes faster then it will be at that point in time and then the, the the remainder stays in the account to grow the account because the, the idea is to grow the account to like how you have an aum of a certain size where you know that um you know your fees on that amount and it's also the net return on that amount is achievable um so that's basically the goal is to grow your you know my bankroll personal bankroll to be a what well, i view like a aum of myself where it's it's everything beyond which can be extracted, but it's basically like like a fifty-fifty. So I maybe lost the Wi-Fi for one second. Uh, you're in and out. It sounds like basically you have fifty-fifty, and you know half the profits you look at it as a certain rate you're you're withdrawing. The other half right. you're beginning to grow. But and then you do have in your mind. Uh, a, a working capital level where okay so you have your living expenses or discretionary expenses whatever so this is x amount and mm -hmm. at some point if you know that uh, some low conservative percentage of that aum can hit that living expense that's kind of where you would stabilize your bankroll so to speak and then at that point yeah. you don't have to aggressively grow as much and you kind of just maintain that yeah um, yeah, you could say like that. Then, then there would be less of an aggressive challenge yeah, at that point. But um, I don't really grow too aggressively as well. And that's why my payout cycle is every two months. Okay. Um, I also, again, I don't have a family. So it's it's different when, you know, you only have, uh, you know, yourself and your partner. And also my, my partner, she has her own business. So um, it might be different if someone was, you know, providing for like a family with many children and mortgages and all that stuff. It's maybe it's, it's a different picture. So my advice is really more for like, the, like the younger solo people, even though not that young, but without dependence. Yeah. Uh, so this current setup and this current path, you've been on it for what, two years, three years about? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. About, I'd say now is just the beginning of my like, phase where I can really start to enjoy my trade that the efforts I've put into learning this craft so yeah it's it's a for people who get started like I would say five years is a really reasonable expectation um a lot of people say some stuff like oh I got I was profitable after two years or three years and that may be so um but it's yeah, it's 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 difficult to do in a short time period without like time to learn yourself and your own your own habits and break old habits. So yeah, maybe three to five years is a really good runway for people. So you know, like you said, getting to the point where you're really kind of getting into the swing of things, and that's kind of the first milestone. Now, 
if things were to continue as they are now, yeah. how long do you think it'll take to get to that next milestone of that stable AUM where you transition to more of the maintenance and not yeah. necessarily going to grow? Yeah, my goal is within like two years. Wow. Within okay. Years. So that that's that's pretty good. Um, yeah, but to get to get to the stable point is like that's that's really that's really that's big because it gives you the confidence like you can start taking things with bigger size um, and knowing that you know even a sequence of three or four bad bad outcomes is not really it doesn't mean the regime has changed right and when you get you need experience to 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 go through these like loss cycles or you know and and I think that just takes time yeah. And uh, right now, and, and this is actually the original reason I wanted to go on, because what is your, being that you're in Asia and the time difference mm-hmm. and you're training U.S. markets, can you give a breakdown of like your, the schedule, you know, like from yeah, morning sure. to when I'm in, trading, yeah, working, relaxing? Yeah, I live normally in Bangkok, Thailand, where my hours for trading are like 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. So it's pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and now that I'm in South Africa where my the trading hours are 3 p.m. to 10 p.m. So I really like it. And I much I much prefer this time zone. Um, but in both both areas, I like to have the morning free for sort of like health stuff and um, doing trying to keep myself in good shape. And then that leaves me the whole I think this time zone where I am right now, like Europe, Africa is pretty perfect. Um, I find like when I was trading, I, I did some trading from Mexico before. And I had to get up at like 5 a.m. And that was just this way too early. Like I don't understand how people can make good financial decisions so early in the morning. But um, yeah, my normal my normal routine is like uh, I start preparing for trades at like 6 p.m. my time, local time in Thailand, and then basically trade all the way till midnight. And and I really have honed most of my day day time frame stuff to be focused on the morning. And also in the morning, New York time is when I'm also putting on my overnight stuff. And then by midnight, my time is lunchtime New York. So I'm more or less done for that day's activity. Um, and then one or two days a week, I have trades that I put out at the close of day. But those are only one or two days per week. So I don't have to really stay up till the close every day. So the time zone definitely encouraged me to get some level of mastery of the opening half of the day. So I kind of, to me, for the longest time, to me, after 1 p.m. New York time just didn't exist. Like I only had, the stock market to me was only open for three and a half hours a day. So I had to find a way to trade that window profitably. And just so happens that like the opening 90 minutes to two hours are, some would say is all you need anyway to, to, you know, day trade or, or trade whatever you want to trade. So even my zero D stuff, I'm like, I can trade the between 9.30 to 11.30 zero D better than anyone. Like I really, I mean, not better than anyone, but just I'm really, if you ask me what happens to an options chain on SPX after 1 p.m., I don't really know. I mean, I do know, but not as well as I know it between, you know, 9.30 and 10.30 a.m. So uh, in that sense, like I really made my trading day work into my normal day. So I could chill, still try and sleep as by midnight or 1 a.m. my time locally. Yeah. yeah, I remember last time we spoke, uh, especially when you're more heavy into the zero DT stuff, you, you mentioned you focused on the first part of the day. As mm-hmm. you recently shifted away from zero DT, has that extended the time you had to spend trading or not necessarily? No, it's actually decreased because um, I only look at the market during certain times of the day. And in oh, between, nice. I 
I don't really need to. I put alerts on. Basically, like I use a lot of price-based alerts. So if certain short legs are, you know, near to certain uh, price levels, I'll get alerts on my phone. Then I'll, you know, I can always manage the position if I if I have to roll or close early or whatever is my um, my technique to manage. So uh, yeah, I find that the the other thing is that as I was traveling, I had to the zero D stuff. I, this happened to me as well with the Theta engine. I kind of lucked out with the Theta engine because I went traveling to Mexico right before the market turned down. So I I closed out my whole book like two uh, maybe like three or three or four days before the carnage started, like before like that never ending snowball of drawdown. I just happened to get out, and in was it, what middle of March the zero D vol really started to die, and it was it was just as I was starting to do my traveling. So I just happened to say to myself, okay, I'm going to be. Off. I'm not going to have screen time to be at the screen because to me, zero D, you got to be at the screen. If you're trading zero D, don't think you're going to put stops and walk away. This is not a, you will pay for this <laughs> naivety if you do that. Right. And um, so I just had to, I was like, you know, I'm not going to be at the screens. I'm going to be traveling. So let me take out the zero D from my book. And it just so happened that as I took it off my book, I was like, wow, man, these, 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 these straddles are like 18 points <laughs> on, on a day, which are, difficult to sell in the early morning you know you have to wait for the move to become overexpressed and then even then you might say the zero d VR, VR, vrp is is maybe this is where jason would say look it's not it's not real it's not there on zero d short side um it only gets pumped in when you get the move and then that's not you know that's not necessarily like vrp that you might want to be harvesting or farming systematically um so yeah, sorry, I got a little bit distracted with that question there, but um, no, that's yeah, fine. I, <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, uh, so, so you mentioned you know, you wake up and you do some personal stuff for health stuff, mm. 6 p.m. is when you get ready for trades. I mean, <laughs> like a good six hours in between, I guess, you know, obviously just normal day to day errands, mm. shopping, whatever. And are, are you spending a lot of time, like, is that when you do your research and like testing and stuff or like planning? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm guessing that's the, the off off-market hours work that you put yeah. in right? the r and right. yeah and i think that was also even a big factor for why maybe i learned the markets maybe okay maybe two three years is not that quick um but i was really consuming the markets all night and then in my daytime i was replaying and going back and i was you know watching podcasts and uh reading sinclair's book so it was almost like a 24-hour um engagement cycle with the market for the three years so I think it would be, it's a different learning pace if you say like trade the market and then you can only do research on the weekends or maybe one or two hours after, after market close. So being on that time frame at the early part of my trading journey, I think was actually quite good because I had, you know, almost like a burning the candle at both ends type of situation. Very cool. Well, traveling Fox, I think we're just over an hour. So I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Um, do you want to share your Twitter handle? I don't know if you want people reaching out. If you do, yeah, feel free to sure. share um, any. Yeah. Uh, what is it? Fox tweet 85. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not that active because uh, for a couple number of reasons, I mean, it's, it, it, I've learned so much from FinTwit, especially from VolTwit. Um, and the, 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 the spirit of sharing has, you know, at times is, is really good, but recent, I don't know whether the market's just been difficult for people, but it's been very, I'd say, like it's been less civil than its normal self. To say the least. 
right? So, yeah, I'm not that active, but for sure, if people want to get out and get in touch with me, and um, particularly if they are new to like Vol and they are getting lost, um, I found that was is very much me for a lot of the journey as well, was getting like over, what do you call it? Overwhelmed by a lot of the Vol tweet stuff. But there's, that's actually also where you, your, your stuff with Tradebusters is really good because you, you put a lot of really actionable, simplified, like simplified actionable ideas um, for retail traders to get started with. So I think that's, uh, it's easy to get overwhelmed, but also if people want to just have basic ideas, they can reach out as well uh, on Twitter, in Twitter for sure. All right, great. Well, that's a wrap. Always appreciate it. Um... There's a lot of stuff I didn't even have a chance to get into. So maybe we'll have you back when you're in a next time you're in a different country. Every time you're in a different country, we'll have you on. We'll have oh, Fox in South Africa and, and wherever. But uh, I would love to. Hey, man. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you again next time. Yeah. Thanks so much, man.